So let's turn to our reading for today, which comes from John's Gospel. We're reading, if you're visiting today, we're reading through John's Gospel at the moment, and we're at chapter 6. going to read there verses, verses 1 to 14, which is John's account of the feeding of the 5,000. And the reading's up there on the screens. If you want to take a Bible, uh, to borrow a Bible uh, for reference later on, then please help yourself. There's some on the tables at the front on either side. Let's hear God's Word. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing those who were ill. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming towards him, He said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, make the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled twelve baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who was to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Amen. One of the things that emerged when uh, I was just joining one of the table chats when we were talking about um, things that we've done to survive or interesting concoctions that we've manufactured out of um, food poverty is that actually for lots of people that's uh, an alien concept, not food poverty. For lots of people, food poverty is a massive uh, issue. But the reality, of course, for many people, not everyone by any manner of means, but for many people is that there are now 24-hour shopping uh, supermarkets, right? I mean, I have a 24-hour Tesco near me. So if I get up at 4 o'clock in the morning and feel like I want to go and buy something that I haven't got, I could just wander along and Tesco will let me in and sell me stuff at 4 o'clock in the morning. And of course, there is, in a sense, a, a an easier access to, to finance. Now, at the same time as there's chronic poverty and need demonstrated by food banks and the enormous problems that universal credit has created for real people, there's also a reality that, for, uh, that, that there's an, an access to, to, uh, to credit, which means that even if you don't have enough, you can just 
uh, get into debt. And one of the other massive issues that affects people in poverty, of course, is when Christmas comes around and people will very often ramp up a huge credit card bill just in order to make sure that the kids have got presents and that there's going to be enough food for the season, but then spend the rest of the year, and quite literally the rest of the year, paying that back. And so, on the one hand, there's, there's an ease uh, in terms of food being available and uh, credit being available, and, and there are, you know, payday loan sharks and all sorts of people who will give you money at ridiculous terms. But of course, on the other hand, we know about the realities of food poverty because we hear about it. Uh, and, and here, of course, in St. George's Tron, we try to do the little bit that we can through the gifted scheme that we operate in the Wild Olive Tree Cafe, which means that people can come, uh, generous people donate, they leave donations, and we use those donations to make tea or coffee or a bowl of soup available to people who are on very limited means. But I wonder, going forward, and I suppose these are the big anxious questions that uh, the nation is wringing its hands over, over the course of this month. What is it going to look like after the 29th of March? What difference will it make in a Brexit economy? Are all the talk, is all the, the, the talk about, uh, what is it, one-third of our food, our fresh fruit and vegetables we import from abroad, or is it two-thirds from Europe, rather? I think it's one-third that we import from Europe. What will the impact be on supply chains in terms of food in supermarkets? Will there be, you know, panic buying if we crash out? Uh, what's this going to mean? And I think all of us have probably either got or heard our own stories about the impact of Brexit, either uh, in terms of um, just holding back on making decisions or businesses going under or, or whatever. So we don't really know. I mean, I was reading yesterday about the, you know, the, the, the promise of the end of Brexit was that, uh, you know, be free to make trade deals all around the world. And yet, even yesterday, I was hearing about uh, a, an emerging spat between the United States and the UK because they want us to take their chicken, uh, but they don't want us to take stuff from China. And there'll be all sorts of, if you take stuff from them, we won't sell stuff to you. And if you take stuff into this country, then you won't be able to export to Europe. And so what looks like a wonderful open market suddenly becomes fraught with a million rules and subtexts and political ambitions around the world. So we don't know what it's going to look like. But all that to say that in a sense, most of us, and I don't want to say all of us because I know that that's not true, and while it may be not true for you now, it maybe hasn't been, has been true for you in the past, most of us can take a supply, a regular supply of food and income pretty much for granted in a way that the people that Jesus was living amongst could not. Now, I've already referenced the problems with universal credit, and we know only too well that uh, just saying that we live in a society where there are benefits and uh, food is available and so on ain't necessarily so. It's a very complicated picture. And we heard in the table talk a reference to the, 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 the ra I'm sorry, I didn't get your name, but the, the, the rationing, post-war rationing, 
And there was a time, and certainly in living memory, my mother, who is 92, uh, remembers the war years and the rationing that followed and how you just had to manage with whatever was available and the little that you were allocated until, was it 1954 rationing was done away with? 1951, 54, I can't remember, around about then. 54, aye. And so, food poverty and poverty in general breeds anxiety. You may or you may not be aware of something called Maslow's hierarchy of needs, where the basic hierarchies of human needs start with things like food and shelter at the bottom. And where they are threatened, our very survival and existence is threatened, and things can turn ugly. In the world that Jesus lived in, under Roman occupation, where taxation came into the Romans, which was draconian. I don't know if any of you have seen the, the, the kind of made-for film called The Nativity. Uh, the the uh, made for, Was it made for TV? Or, no, it was in the cinema. But there's a, a, a film called The Nativity, which paints a portrait of what life was like in Galilee, in Nazareth, around the time when uh, the angel Gabriel visited Mary. What was it like to be Mary with her family in that community? And one of the big fears that looms large in that film that we don't really take for granted is the fear of Roman taxation, the impact of Roman taxation on the economy of the world that they lived in. And if you didn't have the money, then they would take your land and if you didn't have any more land, they might take, or they might take your livestock, or they might actually take one of your children and enslave them uh, as, against the debts that you owed for failing to pay your taxes. So when you think about it in those terms, that actually the, the government could take one member of your family as a slave just to offset your debts then stuff gets real, right? It's no longer just, uh, you know, making do with what you've got roaming around the bottom of the freezer. It's life and death stuff. And so, in that context, we have this story. We have this story, which is the only miracle story that all four of the gospel writers record, the feeding of the 5,000. And John sets it in the context of Passover. It's interesting that he's, he's clear to say the Jewish Passover festival was near. In John's gospel, he, uh, he mentions all three of the Passover festivals, and it's quite interesting, the sequence. The first one he mentions, he mentions just after the wedding at Cana in Galilee. And that's when John tells us, it's the passage that we still haven't looked at yet, but I missed it out. <laughs> Oops. Um, and that's the passage where Jesus, John tells us where Jesus went and overturned the tables in the temple. But it's interesting because that first Passover is in the context of a superabundance of wine at Cana. And is also in the context of Jesus cleansing the temple and making way for something new that's coming. And that's the context in which he says, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. And so, there, allied to Passover is a picture of, of wine. 
and of, of cleansing and of something new coming. Of course, every Passover meal has glasses of wine on it. It's part of what makes the Passover meal. This is the second Passover. And of course, this, as we'll see, it's not just this bit we've read, but the next bit that goes after it, Jesus talks about, I am the bread of life. And it's all about bread. It's all about bread. And of course, Passover is characterized. A Passover meal has wine on the table, but of course, that's central to Passover. It's a feast of unleavened bread. It's a feast where you've got to sweep all the yeast out and, and uh, the, the unleavened bread, bread that, 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 that wasn't uh, allowed to rise, was a symbol of the hurry with which God's people left Egypt as they, after they'd become a nation and were heading into the promised land. And the third Passover begins around the time of chapter 11, chapter 12 in John. And of course, that's the beginning of Jesus' passion. So, the Lamb who is at the center of the Passover festival. And so, there's this build-up three times John tells us about Passover, because there were three Passovers in Jesus' ministry. One which followed the superabundance of wine, pointing forward to the kingdom, to the kingdom meal, the marriage supper of the Lamb, the cleansing of the temple, the get-ready Passover, the bread Passover, which is the one we're looking at, and then the Lamb Passover, when Jesus Himself was the Lamb of God. But here we have Jesus crossing, going over to the other side of the lake. Now, if you're looking uh, at a map, here's the Sea of Galilee. Oh, no, I'm the wrong way around now. I really can't do this. Anyway, which is the west? Is this the west? Yes, okay. So, here's Galilee over here. Here's the Sea of Galilee. Here's Tiberias about here. Here's the eastern side. And on the, other eastern, on the eastern side is uh, what we nowadays call the Golan Heights. The eastern side of the Sea of Galilee was less Jewish. The western side was Jewish. And so Jesus has crossed over, gone round to the other side. Up near the top is Bethsaida, where Philip was from. And so they've crossed over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Sea of Galilee, if you, if you ever go there... If, I don't know if they're exactly the same or not, but certainly when I first saw the Sea of Galilee, I thought, oh, this looks, reminds me of, of Loch Lomond, you know? It's about the kind of size and shape of the, the bottom bit of Loch Lomond. Uh, I know Loch Lomond goes much further up, but the, the main bit. Interestingly enough, it used to be called, before it was the Sea of Tiberias, it, was the, it became known as the Sea of Galilee. It used to be called in the Old Testament days the Sea of Kinnereth, because Kinnereth means liar, and it's shaped like a liar. There you go. Every day is a school day, right? A little factoid. So he crosses over to the other side, and get this, there is a crowd of people who make their way right round the Sea of Galilee. Now, that would be a bit like going from uh, Lush to Balmaha on foot. That's quite dedication, if you know the geography. If you know your Loch Lomond, you'll know that from Lush to Balmaha on foot is quite a hike. And yet, the crowd made their way round to where Jesus was with his disciples. Why did they do that? John tells us it was because they'd seen the signs that he'd performed. 
And because they knew that Jesus was someone who could do stuff. And here were poor people who uh, had very few people who they could turn to or rely on. And in a climate where it seems like everybody's against you and everybody's taking stuff and demanding stuff from you like the Roman rule, somebody who comes along and does good things like healing the sick and performing miracles that no one else can do is someone worth following. Of course, people, if they can sense that a leader might bring them hope, especially in face of troubles they can't fix themselves, will follow that person as a leader. That's how Adolf Hitler came to power in the 1930s. Because in a climate of depression and trouble and difficulty, he was a, a leader who appeared to be a beacon of hope. And people rallied. And so the people rallied to Jesus. And forgive me if you think I'm making a comparison between Jesus and Hitler, but there was an element here. It's in the last verse. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain. You see, the challenge of this passage and the challenge to each and every one of us is, who do you say that I am? Because people wanted and still want Jesus to do stuff for them, to heal them, to feed them, to make all their problems go away, to provide for uh, an insurance against any uh, shortage in supply, any need or want that they might have. And so the people that pursued Jesus were looking for something from him. And the people that pursued Jesus ultimately wanted him to be king because why? Because who doesn't want someone as a leader who appears to be able to give you whatever you want? That's what people do. But of course, the challenge for them and for us is do you recognize who Jesus is and are you willing to follow and keep following him even if it means that there are times when it involves a cross and not a miracle banquet. These were people living hand to mouth in times of poverty and desperation. And so they crossed over and Jesus taught them and they'd made a long journey and he taught them for quite some time. And then the time came where uh, Jesus having taught the crowd raised the question of how they were going to be fed. And he asked the question of the disciples to see if the disciples would have the faith to believe. Now, bear in mind that these were the disciples, some of them at least, who had been at Cana in Galilee. So they'd heard about the provision of the wine. They'd heard about the multiplication of the wine from water that had already gone on. And so Jesus is trying to raise the faith. And I think Jesus does that with you and with me too. 
where sometimes we look at a hard or an impossible situation, and we have options. We have the option to say, how can I solve this? How can I fix this problem? Because we don't have enough. And we can look at that, and we say, well, there's nothing that we can do because we don't have enough. Or we could be creative and resourceful and think, well, we could try this or that. And it's, it's, it's good to be creative and resourceful. We meet on Wednesdays to pray. And uh, there's just a little group of us. It'd be lovely if there were more, but at the moment, there's just a little group of us, half six on a Wednesday evening. Do come along. Because that's when uh, some of us at least, and I know that other people pray at other times, that's when we pray for what God's doing here and what God might want to do here. Because nothing happens in the kingdom of God or in the church of His people unless we pray, unless we ask Him to do things. The work of the kingdom of God advances as we pray. And we took a little bit of time in silence on Wednesday at the prayer meeting. And I don't know whether I heard God or not, or whether it was just a random thought that popped into my head. But the, the counterintuitive thought that popped into my head was, it was as if the Lord's saying, I want you to ask me for more. Now, he didn't say more of what, so I'm quite happy to take that in any one of a million ways. Money, people, energy, resources, vision salvations. But you see, Jesus asked Philip, how are we going to feed these people? And Philip was faced with two possibilities. But he only thought of the one, which was, well, we haven't got the money, there aren't any shops around here, and in any case, it would take eight months' wages, 200 denarii, to feed all of these people. So, the subtext to that statement is, so we can't. <laughs> so we can't. It stops there, right? It stops there because we can't. And that's a, an attitude and mindset that in our earthly perspective and in the world that we live in, we, we are inclined to think in those ways. We're inclined to think well, we can't. We have to do what we can with what we've got, and that's just good stewardship or, or just common sense or whatever we rationalize it. But it's not kingdom thinking, or it doesn't appear to be. I don't think there's any instance where Jesus was stopped from doing something and simply said, well, we just can't, guys, sorry. I'm at my limits. It's as far as it goes. So if we are the body of Christ, then it belongs to us to choose the Jesus mindset over the earthly one, right? It's our responsibility to say, if our limitations are financial, theirs are not Jesus' limitations. That's just an issue that we need to talk to Him about. If our limitations are that we want to see more people come to know Jesus, well, that's a prayer request. And this is, you know, please don't hear, you know, me doing the kind of big stick thing here. I'm not. It's an invitation to believe for more. Philip was invited to believe for more. 
Jesus already had in mind what he was going to do. Isn't that interesting? Jesus already knew how this was going to pan out, but he asked Philip the question. And so, in a sense, God already knows the possibilities. When, 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 when I accepted a call to become minister of St. George's Throne, God already knew that you guys were coming. Didn't tell me. It's nice to see you. But he already knew. And so the challenge when you're looking at nothing or impossibility or I can't see where this could go is to dare to believe that there's a reality that God can see in your circumstances or in your possibilities that you just can't see yet because he's a way ahead of you. He's a way ahead of where you're going and he's already there. So in his mind, there are no barriers or insurmountable obstacles. There may be a change of course that he needs you to take. There may be something else that he needs you to do, but it may just be that he wants to say to you, will you believe me for more? And what does that look like? Does that just look like a, yeah, wouldn't it be nice if that happened? Or does it look like a, okay, Lord, I'm going to believe you for more? I'm going to believe that there'll be some people at the Alpha Course this Friday. Amen. And if there aren't, well, hallelujah. Maybe we'll do one after the summer and there'll be 18 people there, and that's the reason why. And so then Andrew produces this boy. I'm intrigued by this boy. My goodness, this boy has featured in many sermons. <laughs> From the boy who taught the crowd to share. Oh, my word. I don't know if this boy was all that happy to lose his lunch. I'm just going to put that out there. We always paint him as a happy little Sunday school chap who trotted up to Jesus and said, here, you can have my picnic. In that culture, if a man says, here's a boy with some food, and he's a dad type, and you're the only one with food, I don't think they're going to sit you down and say, now, Levi, let's talk about your lunch. You really want to share that with everyone, don't you? I reckon they would just, it's called sequester. They took it off him. I mean, here's the only food, and there's a bunch of grown-ups who need it, and he's a boy, and they're an adult, and this is a world of serious male patriarchy. I don't think that boy had many choices. But that boy, however willingly or reluctantly, or however it was just culturally the thing that you do if a grown-up asks you for something. I mean, I'm old enough to know that if a grown-up asked you for something when you were a kid, in my generation when I was a kid, you didn't question. You, just, you did what you were told, right? Anybody else in my generation recognize that? Right. Okay. Thank you. A grown-up asked you or told you, hand over your picnic, no questions asked, that's you've just lost your lunch. These are barley loaves, by the way. Now, barley loaves sound like something that we might find in a West End delicatessen. Rather nice, rather exotic. Pan de compagne with barley. Actually, barley loaves were amongst the poorest form of bread that people ate. 
So the fact that this was a barley loaf was an indicator of the fact that this boy was from a very poor background. And we're not really talking loaves, okay? We're not talking a kind of, you know, a rustic baguette. We are probably talking something akin to a small scone, okay? A, a small scone, nowhere near as, the big, as big as the ones we serve here. Five small barley loaves and two small fish, and these would be little pickled fish, little preserved fish. So, by all accounts, it's a pretty meager picnic. It's, this is not, you know, it's not substantial by any manner or means. It's a poverty meal. It's not really the point, however. It's described in these terms so that you and I and the, the, the audience that understood the world and the culture would get the fact that this is about as little as it's possible to have without actually having nothing. And so Jesus said, make the people sit down, and we know it must have been March or April because the grass was green. It tells us the grass is green. The grass in Israel from May onwards is just brown because it's scorched, like most Mediterranean countries. You don't see green grass after about March or April. And so there was plenty of grass, and the people sat down in groups, and he took the loaves, and he said, blessed are you, O Lord our God, from whom come the fruits of the earth, and paraphrasing the Jewish blessing that was given whenever food was broken, and then distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted, the same with the fish. And yes, wouldn't we like to know just what that looked like, whether it was just an endless breaking that just never seemed to end. Uh, I have no idea. I cannot imagine. Must have gone on for a long time, however, 5,000 men, and presumably maybe some women, although I suspect the men would be the ones who would, would travel. I don't know if there'd be children there. Children and their mothers would probably be back home in their communities doing chores and work. But even if it was a crowd with as many as 20,000 people there, there was still 12 baskets left. So the boy who willingly, unwillingly, or with very mixed emotions, had yielded his picnic, there was still far more at the end than there had been at the beginning. And that boy ate and was satisfied. That boy, along with all the other people that were there, ate and was satisfied. But let's think about the boy and his sacrifice. Because if you're the only one with a nose to bring food along, and the grown-ups take it off you. You know, those lessons go deep when you're a kid. You know, when something like that happens, and you know, even if everybody else forgets, that you were the one who had the picnic. And sometimes... It may seem like it's a very small thing to other people, but there may be something that is very dear to your heart and something that is very important to you. And it seems that Jesus needs it, and you don't want to give it or give it up. And it seems that if you do give it up, you're going to be the loser. And what's the point in that? But that actually it's out of the small things that are faithfully given, that the big things are achieved. 
It's out of the small things that are faithfully given. You see, I have no expectation when I ask you to be faithful in putting your offerings in, and whether you do that in the box or the Izettle or by standing order or, or whatever. If you're part of this church, your giving, either to the church or in any other way you give, is, is not really so much about you meeting the needs. Because let me tell you, the number of people that are, you know, regularly here and the size of the bills, those numbers don't add up. So we're not really looking with an expectation that you guys are going to cover the electricity bill. Giving is not about that. Giving is about your discipleship. Giving is about you taking real practical steps with what you have and your resources, your time, your money, your gifts, your talents, whatever, as a measure of the fact that you mean business with the Lord and that you're not just a fair-weather Christian. And so Jesus somehow performs this incredible miracle, and then when they'd all had enough to eat, in typical Jewish custom, they gathered the leftovers, because why would you waste? It's that rationing mentality we heard about earlier on. You don't waste anything at all. Let nothing be wasted, and twelve baskets were filled. Interestingly, it doesn't say if any of the fish was left over, but the loaves, because this is about bread. This is about Jesus, the bread of life. And there were twelve baskets significantly, mirroring the twelve tribes of Israel and the twelve apostles who would form the basis of the new kingdom, the new society that Jesus was forming. And so when the people saw the sign, they said, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world, the prophet being Moses, come again. Moses, who fed the people with manna, that bread-like substance in their wilderness wanderings. Moses, who received the instructions about Passover and passed them on, all about the bread. And they recognized, surely this is the prophet, and they wanted to make him king by force. Now, you tell me why they wanted to make him king by force. Was it because they suddenly recognized who he was and they wanted to follow him and honor him in times of plenty as well as in times of want? Or was it because they saw in Jesus a fairly powerful meal ticket? And Jesus knew it was the latter. And Jesus knew that they had not understood who he was. They just wanted to exploit him for their own ends. And I am just as capable of doing that. And so I assume are you. That we are just as capable of being fair-weather disciples that will love and serve and honor Jesus when answers come and things are provided and things join up and it's good and everything is going well and we have what we need. The challenge comes when that doesn't happen. I don't know what it will be like in post-Brexit Britain. Maybe they'll, you know, they'll all go back in the box. But I suspect there will be more people if we do go ahead, needing to trust in the reality of what God can provide and look after for them, and provide for them in their need. And I suspect we may see more people <laughs> accessing food and soup and so on because things suddenly got tight 
But you see, Jesus isn't looking for people who just are interested in what he can do for them. Jesus is looking for people who will be his disciples, who are just as committed to giving and serving and loving him as they are to expecting him to provide for their needs. And he said that he would seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added to you as well. And so, whatever the next few months or years looks like, our calling is to be a people who are recognizing who Jesus is in the good times and in the bad times, whether in plenty or in want. Paul writes, I've learned the secret of being content, whether living in plenty or in want. And that secret is a life of faith in Jesus. It's a life of dependence on Him. And it's the willingness to recognize that even in the constraints of what we maybe don't have, we're still called to love and honor Him and serve others and meet the needs that He sets before us as and when we can. So, we're going to segue into communion and break bread together. And we have five little loaves, but there's a lot less than 5,000 of you. But we're going to take bread in this context of Jesus feeding the 5,000. And we're going to do so and recognize that beyond the bread and the wine, the grape juice that we will share is a reality that we take into our lives and give our lives to. We don't eat this bread or take this wine because we're hungry. We've already eaten lunch. We do it for other reasons. We do it to recognize and to say afresh to Jesus that we see in this broken bread and in this shed, uh, in this uh, cup poured out, that you went all the way to a cross in order to win a people, that you suffered in agony upon a cross in order that you might bear for us what we could not bear for ourselves. We've been looking in the At Five service, uh, Isaiah 53, so let me just read you three verses. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so, as you come to the Lord's table, hear again Jesus' words of invitation, who says, Come to me, 
all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Who says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never thirst. Whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. And so Paul reminds us of how he received the institution of the Lord's Supper, saying, I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so in the name of the Lord Jesus and following his example, I take this bread and wine to be set apart from all ordinary uses. And so as Jesus gave thanks and blessed the bread and wine which he shared at the Passover table and which he thanked God for on a hillside on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, so we draw near to God in prayer. Let us pray.